New Yorkers, starting the week of August 16th, people 12 and older will be required to show proof of vaccination to enter some of New York City's favorite indoor venues and businesses. To enjoy indoor restaurants, bars, gyms, movie theaters, Broadway shows, museums, and more, you will need to show proof of at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. You must show your CDC vaccine card, the New York City COVID Safe app, New York State Excelsior Pass, or other official vaccine record. The highly contagious Delta variant is here in New York City. Protect yourself and others. Get vaccinated today. The COVID-19 vaccines are free, safe, and effective. Visit nyc.gov slash vaccine finder or call 877-VAX4-NYC to learn where you can get a COVID-19 vaccine. What are we gonna do to show we care? How are we gonna be there for our children? When they feel that life has just not been that fair. And now your host. Good evening and welcome back to Masks Weekly Radio Show on Family Matters. Mask Mothers and Fathers Align Saving Kids. Kids of all ages and all stages for all mental health struggles. If you know someone who would benefit from a parent group on Zoom or in person, please give them our number. And that is 718-758-0400. I will repeat the number. Maybe it's for yourself a loved one, a neighbor, or someone you usually would sit next to in shul, you may want to jot it down. Our helpline is confidential, and one can call anonymously and describe a situation. MASK is a referral organization, and we can give you a referral, whether it's for a therapist, an inpatient or outpatient program, if you still need a school for your child, please, we have a yeshiva liaison available to help you and meet with you and your child to pick the right school, the right yeshiva that you may need to visit with to see if it's the right fit. A number again, 718 So tonight, I am very, very happy to have on with us a colleague, Rabbi Avi Landa, who's currently the Mashkir of TA Middle School and the counselor of TA High School. And I would like to say that he is doing practicing mental health counseling since 2013, and he is in Baltimore, Maryland. And we are very happy to have you on tonight. Thank you for joining us, Rabbi Avi Landa. Thank you so much, Ruchama, for having me here at this uh, on this radio show. It's really a privilege 
for me to be able to speak with you and to be able to speak together with your audience. I'd like to just start by saying a tremendous thank you to the MASK organization at large for all the wonderful work that they do, helping and guiding parents in order to be able to make the lives of our children better and healthier lives. You know, when societies are judged in the annals of history, the main area in which those looking back at those time periods will look at is how were the most vulnerable amongst our population treated? And children, the kids amongst us are the most vulnerable, clearly, within our population. So for an organization like Mass to exist, to exist for as long as it has, and to be doing all the great work that it's doing on behalf of our most vulnerable is wonderful for our community, for our society at large. And I'm so privileged and happy to be here to be a part of this. Yasha Koach, thank you so much for your kind words. And um, you have been really not only a Rebbe, but also a therapist, which is a fantastic combination to be a teacher to some and to be able to also be a therapist and help them from the mental health angle. So the reason that I really wanted to have you on now, especially, is kids are going back to school and between COVID and not being in school for so long in and out with Zoom and in person and not in person, nobody's sure how long it's going to be in person or not in person and everyone's frightened. The children speak very much about their anxiety going back to school. Uh, they're not feeling so stable with the idea of going back. Yes, mask, no mask, someplace is mask. So that is why I really wanted to come on. And we've had so many programs about anxiety. And unfortunately, because of the times, is never enough. So I'd like to really talk about anxiety with young adults, children, and let's go to the beer basic definition of how you define how it's defined. Uh, what is anxiety, please? Okay, sure. I agree with you. Anxiety is something which seems to be very prevalent amongst all societies in the world that I've seen and I've dealt with in all communities. And so it's certainly a worthwhile topic for us to understand better and for us to as also understand how to best intervene and help those suffering with anxiety. So at the core, anxiety is a given response that our bodies and our minds have towards specific situations. And a regular, healthy, normal person who's not struggling with any disorder with anything that is disordering their lives, creating a lack of order in their lives, anxiety is something that's actually helpful. Many people don't realize this. If you're walking through the woods, you're on a hike, and out in the distance you saw something big, brown, and furry slowly walking towards you, your eyes would become sharper, your heart rate would increase, blood would flow in ways in which that it would be more to protect you and your adrenaline would increase to give you a boost of energy and you'd have what we would call an anxiety response. It also can be called a fight, flight, or freeze response 
where the body goes into, so to speak, emergency mode, the mind goes into emergency mode, the emotions go along with that, and it's all for the purpose of being able to save you from an otherwise dangerous situation. And so anxiety in and of itself, without that second keyword disorder, without it being an anxiety disorder, is a very healthy, normal response that the body and the mind has towards dangerous situations. And is all anxiety bad? Right. So that's a good question. Based on the way that I'm defining it, obviously the way in which a person feels anxiety when they are in a dangerous situation, when they need to fight or flight to flee from a dangerous situation or to be able to freeze, make themselves more hidden when they need to do these things to protect themselves. It's a not only not bad, it's a great response that is built into us for, for obvious purpose. However, when you get to the point of it being a disorder, that's when quote unquote, it could become something bad, which is something that we would want to treat. And the way to gauge that basically is what is your environment? So we talked about the example where you're walking in the woods and you're taking a hike and you see that big brown furry thing walking towards you and it looks like it's a bear and you have this amazingly strong anxiety response. If at that moment I would say, can we have a calm conversation about what you'd like to have for dinner tonight? The person wouldn't be able to think straight. There's potentially a bear coming towards me. I need to muster the adrenaline and, and think fast and figure out my next move. And the anxiety is basically taking you away from being able to remain calm, but again, for good reason. Now, what if there's no, there's nothing brown in the distance. There's brown and furry in the distance. You're just on a hiking trail and it's quiet and it's peaceful. And you get that same response. What if you're not even out in the woods? You're sitting in a classroom, safe. You're sitting in your living room at home, safe. And yet you have that same type of reaction seemingly to nothing or to something that doesn't seem justified. Why would you become so frightened and so anxious for something that doesn't seem to justify it, something that doesn't seem to be dangerous at all? And that's when it starts to potentially become a disorder. It starts to become a disorder when you see the person not being able to handle everyday, regular, normal, otherwise safe situations in life, and they're actually bogged down by those anxious feelings. The anxiety is on overdrive. It's coming into play when it's not supposed to, when there's no danger, and they end up with having disorder in their lives. And that's really when it needs to be treated. So you mentioned disorder. Um, the truth is that a lot of people now with COVID, uh, anxiety really, you know, became... It's a tremendous uh, feeling of you go into a store, you know, do you need a mask? Don't you? You go into your synagogue, your shul, do you need a mask or don't you? I mean, can COVID make a person's anxiety develop into a disorder? That's an excellent and very difficult question to answer, and I'll explain why. Whenever we're dealing with someone who is struggling with anxiety, so as a therapist, if they're coming to you and you assess, yes, indeed, they have an anxiety disorder, what it means again is 
that they're struggling with the feeling of anxiety despite there not being any significant danger. And that's therefore impeding and getting in the way of them having a normal accomplishing life. Now, let's say we had a person who was on the front lines of a war and every day, day after day, they were in a genuinely dangerous situation and constantly feeling anxiety. Maybe you have someone who's a police officer and every day they're driving through a crime ridden neighborhoods and every day they're feel they're riddled with anxiety, even though the anxiety is very common and often and even daily it's still justified and we wouldn't call it an anxiety disorder because it's the appropriate response for the body and mind to have to a dangerous situation. So what about COVID? That's going to depend heavily on where are you? What's your circumstances? What situation are you in? What's your scenario in terms of is there danger or not? It's also going to depend when it comes to COVID especially, but it's true with other things, on who are the experts and the Rabbanim that you follow. If you get a psak, if you get a uh, decision from a rabbi, or if you get a decision, uh, obviously based on medical experts, or if you get decisions given to you from medical experts as to whether or not it is indeed dangerous to, for example, go to the store. We can't get into all the details. Are you vaccinated or are you not vaccinated? How old are you? What are your conditions? Bottom line is, if your medical experts are saying it's dangerous for you to be in the store, then you probably shouldn't be there. And if for some reason you have to go, then to have some anxiety associated with that is appropriate because there indeed is danger. If the medical experts are telling you it's not dangerous for you to go to a store, then it would not be appropriate to have significant anxiety that makes it very hard for you to go to the store because the medical experts are telling you it's safe. So if it's basically safe and you're still feeling anxiety, which makes it hard for you to go and do those normal things that we do in life, then that's where it starts to become a disorder because it's disordering our lives. It's stopping us from going to shul, from going to school, from going to the store, despite the fact that the medical experts are telling us that it's safe. So it depends on what those opinions are very much in terms of deciding, is it appropriate to have that anxiety or not? So Rabbi Landa, you're a teacher and a therapist. How does that... Um, what can parents and, and teachers do to help a child that's suffering from anxiety? Being that you're in the schools, you see how they are in the classroom and in play areas and during lunch, and then people come and see you privately as a therapist. So you really see the home and the school life on many children. What do you say parents should work on and what teachers can help when the child is suffering from anxiety? Sure, great, great question. How can we help those people around us, especially the children around us, but as well as the young adults and the adults who are suffering from anxiety, again, where there's no danger, no significant danger, and yet, their mind and their body is having this anxious response and it's impeding them from being able to accomplish and uh, be able to go through their everyday tasks and goals in life. So one more introductory point that I think is important to set up the answer for this question is that in reality, every single thing we do in life, bar none, has some risk to it. There is no such thing as an activity that has zero risk. 
there's always some problem or danger or injury or 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 sickness that can come about from everything we do and including just simply staying home and certainly going to school and going to a store however we as human beings we recognize as healthy human beings that when the chances of having anything detrimental happen to you are low enough we ignore that risk and we go about doing our going about our daily lives and we have normal wonderful accomplishing lives not impeded by anxiety so the first thing that's an important piece to know when you want to try to help parents and teachers to to come and help the children who are suffering from anxiety and really to help anyone suffering from anxiety is they can't approach the person looking at them so to speak like they're crazy there are people who suffer from psychosis but the vast majority they are in touch with reality in this one area they're they're for whatever reason the chemical makeup in their brain etc and their environmental factors are causing them to have an exaggerated anxiety response even though there isn't significant danger but there's something there almost always so first first step is empathy empathy is where you really put yourself in their shoes and you see their perspective you understand that maybe they don't want to go to school because they know that in school there's more germs there's truth to that there is truth to the fact that there could be more germs in a store or in school and there there are elements of truth to it it's just that as a healthy person we see the risk as low enough that we tolerate that risk and we have normal productive lives so step number 1 is to feel like okay i get you validating you don't have to agree there's a very important distinction between agreeing and validating someone else's perspective. You can say, I hear where you're coming from. I think this is what my opinion is, but let me say over your opinion to make sure that I understand it and you really get their opinion and they can feel validated and they can feel connected and they can feel more open to your suggestions. The next simple step to take to help someone struggling with anxiety in my opinion is a simple reassurance. You can try to simply reassure them after you validated and you empathized their perspective and their worry. You then say the next part of the conversation, you know, is there really anything to worry about? Maybe it's a very low chance. You know, give it a shot. I'll be here for you. You can call me. Parents can say that, teachers can say you can speak to me after class. Reassure them that it is safe and you're here for them. Now, reassurance is actually not the way to treat an anxiety disorder from a cl clinical active it's just a first step approach to detect whether the person really has a full-fledged clinical disorder if reassurances work and they don't just work for 5 or 10 minutes but they really work the person feels better for a while for a few days for a week or two and every so often they need a little more reassurance no no that's okay no problem then that's the so to speak medicine they need especially in the tumultuous times that we're living in the problem becomes what happens if they don't respond to that reassurance at all. You give them that reassurance and maybe it works for 5 or 10 minutes and they're right back to where they were. Literally can't go back to class, can't go to the office, can't go to the store. And therefore the disorder really is still very much there despite the reassurance. That's how you know that there's actually a clinical anxiety disorder because that first initial step of reassurance after the empathy and the validation is not working. <laughs> Rabbi Lanza, on the mask helpline over the years, it, anxiety was one of the lower numbers of calls that we received. And I'm doing this 24 years, over 100,000 clients. And, I, you know, we hear a lot. But the last two years, 
literally, I would say 70% of the calls that come in are related to depression, anxiety, and OCD. So I'd like to ask you to explain how OCD relates to anxiety. Okay, sure. So OCD really is a subset of anxiety. Like we discussed, anxiety is where there is this unjust, anxiety disorders where there's unjustified, exaggerated level of fear and anxiety, feelings, nervousness, worry towards situations that are indeed not, do not rise to the level of danger that we should be warranted in fearing them and avoiding them and worrying about them. OCD stands for obsessive compulsive disorder. Essentially what it is, is O, the obsession, that's really the anxiety, obsessing about something, whether it's obsessing about, for example, touching doorknobs. I cannot touch doorknobs. They have too much germs. If I do, it, the germs from the doorknob will infect me and kill me. I will die. And that's what I'm worried about. And that is an exaggerated fear and worry. It's, a not, it's an unhealthy fear because it, the, although, again, we can validate and we can empathize with such a thought pattern because doorknobs are often the most touched thing in the room and therefore can have the most germs, but it still does not rise to the level of what we should be avoiding with tremendous fear and worry and anxiety. So there's, so to speak, the anxiety disorder all wrapped up in the O of OCD. That's the obsession piece. What makes it OCD is that it's not just the O, which is the anxiety, but there's the C, which is the compulsion, obsessive compulsive disorder. The C is what action or even thought process do you take in order to try to calm yourself down? It's like the reassurance, but it doesn't really work well because you still remain very scared, either immediately or shortly thereafter, like we described when reassurances don't work with someone struggling with anxiety. So again, using our example, the person who has a fear and a tremendous anxiety of touching doorknobs, so their compulsion may be, in order to fix that, they use their elbows to always open doorknobs. Perhaps they put on gloves to always open doorknobs. That's their compulsion, helping them feel better about their obsession, in those cases really to avoid their obsession. Sometimes, interestingly, and it's much harder to understand the logic even at a low level on these, they have a need to repeat an action a certain amount of times so they're not sure whether the door is locked. As soon as they lock it and turn around, they have this obsession, maybe I didn't lock the front door. So they turn around and see it's locked and then turn back around. Sometimes the compulsion is to unlock and lock a certain amount of times in order for them to finally feel like, okay, it's locked. And it's hard to understand exactly what comprises, what makes up the numbers and the amount of times and exactly why they do the certain behaviors. But essentially that compulsion is either a way to avoid or feel better about the anxiety. But by its definition, the D is very important. It's a disorder because... By doing so, it is disordering their lives. It is causing them to not be able to get to bed at a normal hour, not be able to walk through rooms in a normal manner and things take extra time and they avoid certain social situations because of the OC, because of the obsessions and the compulsions that are plaguing them, bringing about the D, the disorder. So OCD really is that subset of anxiety. It just has that expanded element where there's a compulsion involved. And allow me just for a minute to, to describe 
how many therapists would treat, at least from a CBT perspective, that's cognitive behavioral therapy perspective, when it comes to anxiety and OCD. Essentially, almost the opposite of reassurances. So again, we've tried reassurances, they don't work, and therefore we can be more confident in the diagnosis that it is indeed an anxiety disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. The essential treatment revolves around exposing the client to the fear or the worry in a repetitive, intentional fashion where we're not trying to distract ourselves from the fear. We actually jump into that fear and expose the person to the fear, obviously with their permission that they want to be helped. And we do that either by having them actually touch the doorknob in our office or out in the field, do things with them to help them actually expose themselves to it, or even just imaginatively by talking about it in session, imagining doing those things. You're exposing them mentally and physically to the anxiety repetitively and intentionally without distraction. That taps into a fascinating mental construct that we all have within us. And in, in Chazal, in, in the Gemara, in the Talmud, that's referred to as Hergel. And similarly sounding in English, it's to become regular, regularity, otherwise known as habit. When we become used to something, we become habituated to something, it loses a lot of its effect. And so what we want to do is instead of reassuring and reassuring, which is almost only feeding it once it's truly a disorder, you actually then, if it's diagnosed as a disorder, do not want to reassure. And you switch gears to having them face it over and over again so that they become more and more habituated to the fear. And as we know, anything that's frightening, the more and more and more you are exposed to it in an intentional, guided way from a professional, of course, this is not for parents or teachers to do, but with the professional's guidance, the more you become desensitized to it, habituated to it, used to it, and the dramatic shock effect starts to wear off and become lower, and you're able to handle it without then going through the response in an OCD case. So that's the response prevention piece where you're not actually going to need as much to go through the compulsion, that action or that thought that you need to hold on to to make yourself feel better. And slowly but surely, you can live with that much lower level anxiety and in an anxiety disorder that's wonderfully a, a, a tremendous feeling of freedom that you're free from that intense anxiety. It's much lower, at least, as would be the goal as well as an OCD, you don't have that need to engage in the compulsion, which paradoxically is really making things worse after that initial minute of relief. And you slowly bring the person. I've had many clients, thank God, who have had pretty severe cases of OCD and anxiety. And through such processes like this, ERP, again, exposure and response prevention, only meant for professionals to implement, they're able to get a lot of relief from the intensity of those anxieties and live wonderful, healthy, accomplishing, productive lives. That, Rabbi, I would like you to, uh, if you don't mind, to please just speak a moment about the anxiety, how it affects in religious practices for some. We're running out of time, so if we can do that, please, as quickly as we can. Sure, I can touch on that just for a minute or two. So there is a subset, actually, of OCD called scrupulosity. That's just the clinical name for struggling with OCD when it comes to religious practice. So for example, somebody who is saying the grace after meals, benching, somebody who is davening in shul, praying, 
and they need to repeat words over and over and over again. Again, the O, oh, the obsession, the anxiety of I might not have said that word or I might not have said that word appropriately or properly or accurately. And the need, the compulsion to then repeat over and over a certain amount of times till they finally feel the relief, it can be devastating. And there are many, many other areas in religious life where OCD can take its toll from the most public areas of our lives to the most private areas of our lives. And sometimes it's visible, therefore, sometimes it's totally not visible. And people have to see this within their own families to encourage people to get the help that they need. The treatment is essentially the same in terms of habituation. Sometimes it's, it's interesting. You need to be creative and strategic how to appropriately do habituation. And that's why you always have to make sure to consult professionals when you're trying to treat any of these types of clinical situations. Thank you very, very much, Rabbi Avi Lanza, for explaining all the different areas in anxiety. I really, really am so happy that you were able to make it on tonight and uh, hope to have you on again soon. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. And I want to wish you a very good evening, a beautiful Shabbos. And always remember, hang in, hold on, and for now, virtually, hug tight. Tonight's show is in memory of Rifka Bas Yisrael. Please consider to go online to www.massparents.org and donate online to help us continue with all the mass programs. Thank you and have a good night. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You always do your best to keep your child safe, especially during the pandemic. If your child is at least 12 years old, getting them vaccinated against COVID-19 will keep them safer everywhere they go and whatever they do. The COVID-19 vaccines are effective at preventing disease, and millions of adolescents have already been vaccinated safely. Get your child vaccinated against COVID-19 before school starts. Visit nyc.gov slash COVID vaccine.